Alright, uh, welcome this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to be continuing our study we started last week in the book of Jude. And uh, this morning I've entitled the message, Called, Loved, and Kept. And we're going to do Called and Loved this morning, and next week we'll do Kept. <laughs> because I just couldn't get it all in there, alright? In this book, in this little epistle, Jude exhibits the standard first century letter format. The author mentions himself, he's Jude, and his recipients in the greeting. He has a main body of exhortation or argument, and then he ends with a doxological song of praise. So we'll look at all that in the weeks to come. We looked last week at who this Jude was who wrote the book. And I said that I believe this is Jude, the Lord's half-brother. Now, the Scripture tells us that Jude did not come to faith in Yeshua, his brother, until after the resurrection. Can you even imagine growing up in the home with Yeshua as your brother? Never does anything wrong, he's perfect, doesn't sin, he just, you know, parent's favorite child, of course, you know. This would have been rough growing up in that home. You could see the brothers be having a little bit of resentment there, right? Grew up in the home with him, yet never really believed in him. Never believed that he was the Messiah until seemingly after the resurrection. Notice what Mark tells us about Yeshua's brother. He came home and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. Now here his own people, there's arguments here about whether this meant family or friends, but in the Greek, it it could kind of go either way. The word translated people really means relatives. Literally, it means those from beside him. So we learn from the latter part of the chapter that this is actually his mother and his brothers. Now, notice what they thought of Yeshua. He has lost his senses. All right, this is really a mild, weak translation. It means to be bewitched, to be amazed to the point of being irrational, beside self, incapable of caring for self. We could translate this, he has lost his mind. He's crazy. He's had a breakdown. He's not in his right mind anymore. This is contrasted in 2 Corinthians 5.13 with a sound mind. So this would mean to be unsound mentally. They're going to their brother and their son and say, hey, wait, we got to get you out of here. You're just not quite right in the head. There's problems here. So his earthly family, including Jude, concluded that he's out of his mind. He wasn't able to care for himself. He wasn't following the traditions of the elders. He had become a fanatic. He's suffering from some kind of delusions of grandeur. So the only thing to do was go out and bring him back home, where he'd be out of the public eye and maybe they could get him some help. I don't think they had psychiatrists in those days, so I'm not sure how they got him help. But uh, <clears throat> Now John tells us, Why they thought Yeshua was crazy. In John 7, he says, Therefore his brothers said said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They didn't believe in him, so that's why they thought he was crazy. This stuff he's saying sounds absolutely ridiculous when they don't believe in him. Now that all changed after the resurrection when their brother who they saw crucified, they saw buried, 
And then they saw it come back to life. Now that had to be a shocker, okay, for them. They saw their brother crucified, they saw him buried, and all of a sudden he's alive. And notice what Luke tells us in Acts. There in Acts 1, in the upper room, it says, When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John. Then it lists all the disciples that were in the upper room. Then verse 14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary and the mother of Yeshua with his brothers. So here they are now. Obviously something's happened because they're with the disciples and they're in the upper room waiting for Pentecost. So while Yeshua's family was originally skeptical of him, I think his death and resurrection obviously convinced them. Now can you imagine what Jude must have thought when he first came to faith in Christ? His brother, his older half-brother, and he realized that his older brother that he had grown up around, that he had spent all this time with, was actually God who created the universe and him and everything in it. That would have to be a kind of hard to process, right? Can you even imagine what's going through his mind? My older brother created the world and all in it. You know, that's kind of staggering. So Jude, who was the half-brother of Yeshua, has now become the bondservant of Yeshua. Whatever earthly relationships he had prior to coming to faith in Messiah became utterly meaningless now. It didn't matter that he was the brother of Yeshua. And that's why he doesn't say that in the thing. Yeshua, his brother, is now his Lord. And that's what's important. And I said last week, when we were talking about the introduction, that some deny that that the Jude who wrote this was Yeshua's brother because they say that the apostles were the source for all the content of the New Testament. Now, in last week's question and answer, I realized that this may have come across as if I was holding that position, but I assure you it's not. And I'm sorry for the confusion. Let me remind you that I don't believe that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, or 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, or Revelation. Okay? I don't believe he wrote those. I believe Lazarus did. So therefore, I don't think that the Apostles were the source for all the New Testament. But I do believe that Yahweh sourced all the New Testament. Alright, we talked about that last time. That's, we understand that, you know, we can argue about who the author was, but we know that Yahweh is the author. Now, Jude's purpose in writing this letter is to warn the church of apostates who had arrived and were teaching false doctrine and were literally trying to destroy the church. And in this epistle, we're going to see that Jude insults these opponents over and over, calling them different names. Matter of fact, 25 times in 25 verses. I like Jude because he wasn't worried about being politically correct. He wasn't worried about hurting someone's feelings, saying the wrong thing. Oh my word, our, our day is so crazy with sensitivity. You say one thing wrong and, you know, it's, people are nuts today. Now, Jude wasn't worried about that. Jude acts as a prosecuting attorney in this epistle, determined to convict the accused whose ungodly behavior demanded punishment. And so he's out to lay it out on them. Alright, now I said last week, that the structure of the letter is poetic. Jude writes using triads throughout this letter for a total of 14 triads and only 25 verses. We see the first triad in the end of verse 1 where Jude addresses his audience. Jude, okay, we know the author is Jude. He's the bondservant of Yeshua. He doesn't say brother of Yeshua because that doesn't matter anymore. He's his bondservant. And he's the brother of James. And like I said last week, Brother of James, if this is the Apostle Jude, that doesn't make any sense because 
his brother, James, we don't know anything about him. But if this is Yeshua's brother, then James means something because he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So we see some connection here. Now he writes, now he's going to tell us who the audience is. The audience is to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Yeshua the Christ. That's his audience. So his first triad, Jude references the different roles of the three persons in the Godhead concerning our salvation. The call. He, that's the Holy Spirit who calls. They are beloved in God the Father, and they are kept through Yeshua the Christ. So there we see the Trinity in this verse. All three persons involved in the salvation. This is true, what he's saying, of Jude's audience. Now, we said last week that Jude is writing to those saints in the transition period. And we have to be careful as we read through it. We have to apply principles of hermeneutics so we make sure we're, you know, these things apply to us. So I just want you to understand today that this is true of Jude's audience and it's every bit is true to us today, I believe. All believers, then all believers today are called, they're beloved of God, and they're kept by Yeshua. And that is good news, people. Now, the New International Version has kept by Jesus Christ instead of kept for Yeshua the Christ. Now, kept by is not, the by here is not in the original text. Um, and it could be read either way. It can be read kept by, kept in, or kept for. Any one of those statements really can be justified. But we are kept by Yeshua the Christ. So Jude writes, to those who are the called. Called is from the Greek word kletos, which is a verbal adjective from kleo. To call. The verbal adjective is sometimes used as a verb, sometimes as a noun referring to believers. Every time this term is used in the epistles and in Revelation, it means the same thing as chosen. Alright, the called are chosen, the chosen are called synonymous. Alright? It's a synonym. And this word called is the main word in the sentence. It's at the end of the sentence in the Greek to give it emphasis. The other perfect passive participles are in opposition or explanation of this main one. Because we are called, we're beloved in God the Father, and we're kept by Yeshua the Christ. That's the way you would understand this grammar here. Or you could read it this way. We are beloved in God the Father, kept by Yeshua the Christ, since we are the called. Now, it is this calling that sets us apart and makes us both loved and kept. Now, this idea of being called is found over and over in the New Testament. People don't like this. You know, the church today as a whole rejects this whole idea of calling. But let's just look at a few scriptures because the church today, I think, rejects the scriptures or is not familiar with it, and that's the problem. Romans 1, 6, and 7, Paul writing to the believers at Rome says, Among whom you also are the called of Yeshua the Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Here Paul tells the readers they are called and are called as saints. Now notice that he also does the same thing Jude does here and he says, you're beloved. That's why you're called, because you're beloved. The language is very familiar, I think, to anyone who's acquainted with the New Testament. You see this idea of the calling over and over. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Now remember, Corinthians, one of the most messed up groups in the Bible, okay? If you could have a messed up group, this was a very messed up one. 
you were doing, could do it wrong, they did it wrong. Paul writes to them, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, Hagios, set apart in Christ Yeshua, saints by calling. Why are you saints? Because you've been called to be saints. These messed up people are saints. That's what he says. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, their Lord and ours. We could translate this called to belong to Yeshua the Christ. We belong to Yeshua because we have been called. Look at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians. But we preach Christ crucified. All right, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's preaching the crucified Christ. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. The Jews don't want to hear that stuff about a crucified Messiah. They stumble over that. To the Gentiles, that's just foolishness. A Messiah who dies on a cross, that's absolutely foolishness. So how does he preach the gospel if it's to the stumbling block to the Jews and the Gentiles, it's just foolishness? Well, watch verse 24. But to those who are called. Here's, this is what makes the difference, people. It's the call of God. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what makes the difference. The calling of God. Believers, we are the called. This is not an external call. This is an internal call. It's not just an invitation extended to those on the outside. This is the moving of God on the inside. This is the work of the Holy Spirit on what the Bible calls the elect. He calls the elect to Himself. This is the saving call This is the call that cannot be resisted. All who are called come to Christ. Now, someone who is not a Calvinist would say, so God drags people into the kingdom. He does, but they come willingly because He changes their heart before He brings them in. Okay? That's the whole issue. It's not that, you know, I heard one lady told me once, oh, Calvinist, that means God drags people into the kingdom against their will. No, He doesn't. He changes their will, then He brings them in. Okay? It's just that simple. Alright? It's a, it's an efficacious call, and when God calls, people come. Alright? Now, to help us understand what Jude meant by called, like I said, there's a lot of controversy in the church today about this whole thing because we are so big on individualism, we're so big on free will, that we get to do what we want to do, and God's up there and He just kind of does what we want Him to, not what He wants to do. Alright? So, to help us understand what called means, Let's look at the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of faith. What does the Scripture say about this call? Where else will we look? Well, the best place I know of to go to get a good understanding on exactly what called means is in Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 8. In Romans 8, 29 through 30, Paul gives us these verses that are often called the golden chain of salvation or the ordo salutis. The ordo salutis is just Latin. It means the order of salvation. Watch what he says. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. There's our word. Alright, called's right in the middle of all this other stuff. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Okay, it's an unbroken chain. This is the logical sequence of steps that happen in a believer's life. More importantly, this has to do with who made the first move in salvation. See, the wide spectrum of modern Christianity insists that any and every saved person had to make the first move. Right? The Lord's a gentleman. He knocks on your heart's door and the doorknob's only on the end. You've seen all that. 
crazy, you know, unbiblical stuff. All right? Like God can't get in, but He really wants to. All right? That's not what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the will like He's sovereign over any, everything else. All right, The order of salvation starts with foreknowledge. Now, some understand foreknowledge as God looking into the future and seeing what you'd do, and He looks and He says, Oh, I see. They're going to believe. I choose them. Who's, 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 who's choosing then? Who's, who's doing the choosing, really? You are, right? But here's the thing that bothers me. They're saying that God gained knowledge through empiricism. He looked and he says, oh, I see something. So God must not be all-knowing. He must not be omniscient after all because he's learning. He's looking and seeing what you'll do and say, I just learned something. They're going to trust me. Cool, I'm going to choose them. They want me, I want them too. That's ridiculous. Because that's not, first of all, it doesn't say it's not what he foreknew, it's whom he foreknew. The word foreknew is from the Greek word prognosko, and the background of this term has to be located in the Hebrew Scriptures. You've got to understand what he's talking about. Where for God to know something refers not to simply knowledge, but to love. Alright? Adam knew Eve, and what happened? She conceived. Well, of course he knew her. She was his wife. Well, no, that, that is a term used for love in Scriptures. Look at Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, the Lord said. It's used of a covenantal love. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. The text is saying that God foreknew Jeremiah. Not that he just foreknew he'd be a prophet, but he loved him. And he put him in that role as a prophet. Amos 3.2. Yahweh says, Only you have I known of all the families of the land. Therefore, I charge on you all your iniquities. Only you have I known. What does this mean? Did God have no knowledge about the Canaanites? The Egyptians? The Assyrians? No, it meant He had a special love relationship with Israel. You only have I loved. Of all the families in the land. Israel was a chosen nation. The term foreknow must have a limited meaning because if it simply means to know ahead of time in the context of Romans 8, then guess what? Everybody's saved. Everybody's glorified. Because whom He foreknew, He glorified. The chain's unbroken. So it has to have some kind of a limited context here. To foreknow a person is to enter in an intimate relationship with them to choose them. Foreknowledge or knowledge is a Hebraic term which has to do with intimacy. Look at Psalm 1.6. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. What's that mean? He just sees the righteous and knows what they're doing? No, it means He loves it. But watch, this is a parallelism. But the way of the wicked will perish. He loves the righteous, but the wicked, they're going to perish. Look at Matthew 7.23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's he saying? He's saying, I never loved you. Not that I never knew you. He knows everything. In this unbroken chain of salvation, all whom Yahweh loved beforehand, all he foreknew, he justified, and all he justified, he glorified. Now we know that everybody's not going to be justified. Unless you're a universalist. So this meant that Yahweh does not love everybody, 
which is a truth taught throughout Scripture. Another truth that today the people just have a really hard time with. After all, he's God. He should love everybody, right? Well, he is God. So it gives him the prerogative to do what he wants to do. So our salvation begins in eternity past with God choosing to love certain individuals. Then we see that all whom God loved, he predestined. This is the Greek word porizo, porizo, and it, it's a word from which we get our word horizon. This Greek word could literally be translated pre-horizon. The horizon is that boundary between earth and the sky, and the Greek word horizo means to establish boundaries, to set boundaries, to draw lines, to establish the limits, to determine what will be. And to do this ahead of time in eternity past is predestination. So God is drawing boundaries around the people He loves, basically. The predestination in Romans 8.29 means that in eternity past, Yahweh drew some lines. He established a horizon around each person that He had foreknown. He set a boundary marking Him off. A circle of destiny. What predestined means, in its most elementary form, is that our final destination, heaven or damnation, is decided on by God, not only before we get there, but before we are born. The scripture also calls this election. It's the idea of Yahweh choosing whom he loves, choosing them to be part of his family, choosing them to be in his presence. The gospel is the good news, not of man's act of choosing Christ, but of God's act of choosing man. Election is an idea seen, again, throughout the scripture. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you. Now notice, these people are beloved, he says. You're beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. They were beloved by the Lord, and they were chosen for salvation. He says, we're giving thanks to God for you. We're not giving thanks to you because you were smart enough to make the right decision. We're so thankful you're smart. No, we thank God that He loved you and that He chose you. Look at Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Yeshua the Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Notice again, this choosing took place in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Yeshua from all eternity. He saved us. He called. Why did God choose certain people? Because of His own purposes. We also see in this verse that God's foreknowing and election took place in eternity past before the foundation of the world. Now, according to Romans 8.29, what did Yahweh predestine us for? To become conformed to the image of His Son. Now, the word conformed here is the Greek sumorphos, and it means It comes from morphe, meaning the essential character of something, the essential form which never alters. And the word Paul uses here is not morphe, but sumorphos, which means jointly formed. The prefix sum denotes union with or together with. This sum prefix 
tells us that this is a positional association. God predestined those He loved to share Christ's righteousness, to become conformed to the image. That is to share the righteousness of Christ. That's what He predestined those people for. Then He says that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn was the Redeemer in the Jewish economy. So the term firstborn of many brethren has a distinctively redemptive content. It speaks of Christ as the Redeemer of His people. The restorer of all had been lost through disobedience to Adam. Alright, so far we've seen the foreknowledge and predestination. And please understand that both of these happen before time. It was an eternity past that Yahweh loved and chose. Then in time, we were born into the world, and when we were born, we were born into a calling. The ones He predestined, He also called. This is the call that Jude speaks of in verse 1. This calling is an effectual calling, as we said. Yahweh is calling dead people to life. This is regeneration. This is a spiritual resurrection. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He, is the idea, made us alive together with Christ. See, here's the issue. Fallen man, in his natural state, lacks all power to commune with Yahweh. Because man is spiritually dead. That's what the Scriptures teach. He's dead. He is separated from God. And apart from God giving him life, man can't understand, doesn't care about, will not seek, doesn't give a rip about God. This little understood truth is also taught in Acts 13, 47-48. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. He's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They hear it, and they're all excited, and they're glorifying the word of the Lord. Now watch what it says. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. Who believed? All the Gentiles? No. The ones who heard the gospel? No. The ones that had been appointed to eternal life. This is virtually identical to what Paul says in Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He called. It means the same as as many as were foreordained to eternal life believe. And please notice that Paul's doctrine of predestination didn't deter him from his missionary labors. He's here preaching the gospel to these Gentiles and the ones who are believing are the ones that God has chosen. Look at John 12.37-39. But though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing in Him. Now think about the sight. He's claiming to be Messiah, and look what He's doing. He's raising dead people. What if you were at that funeral? He stops the coffin. He tells the boy, get up! He gets up out of the coffin and says, here, take care of your mom. What if you were at that funeral? Did that have some kind of impact on you? Maybe you think, he's feeding all these people, he's walking on water, he's doing all these miracles, healing the sick. He banishes disease from Palestine, but they weren't believing. It says, why weren't they, but it says they were not believing in Him. End of verse 37. Verse 38 says that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report to whom of the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now watch verse 39. For this cause, they could not believe. They didn't believe because they couldn't believe. Because God had not given them life. Paul teaches the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You ever, 
I remember when I became a Christian. Guy handed me a track at work. Public, Chick Publications, Big Daddy. I stopped working because I thought it was a comic book, you know. Sat along my bench there, and I'm reading this comic book, and I'm like, wow, I got really convicted by that thing. Really convicted. Something happened in me. I didn't even understand what I, I had to come back and ask the guy who gave it to me, what's going on with me, you know. And, and so I, I wanted to tell everybody. And every weekend we had a kegger. All the friends get together. We all pitch in. We got a keg and we had this big party. And so I got a bunch of tracks and I'm handing them out at the party, handing them out to everybody. And they're looking at them and just throwing them down on the ground. And I'm like, I was so disappointed. I thought, wait a second. Did, did you not read that? Why did it affect me? And they could care less about it. Because God had called me. And the call makes a huge difference. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. Natural here is sukakas. It means the man without the Spirit. He's not going to accept spiritual things. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He's natural, so he can't understand the things of the Spirit. The man without the Spirit, unless the Spirit what does work in the person's life, they don't get it, they don't care about it. God's effectual calling, regeneration is absolutely necessary because apart from it, no man has the ability to understand or desire the things of God. Hodge says this of regeneration. The instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. Regeneration, therefore, is a spiritual resurrection. The beginning of a new life. And God just gives you life. You're dead and He gives you life. Thiessen says, regeneration may be defined as the communication of divine life to the soul, as the impartation of a new nature or heart and the production of a new creation. Now, that's what regeneration is. Now, there are many different views of regeneration within the church today. The Pelagian view says that regeneration is a moral transformation. It's a work of man. Most liberals today hold to this view. This view was condemned by the church in 431 at the Council of Ephesus. Practically, the Pelagian says, I can save myself by my own works. Adam was probably the first Pelagian. Alright? He tried to cover his sin with the fig leaves. Yahweh had to kill animals and clothe Adam and Eve with the skins of those to picture the righteousness of Christ. Now, then we have the Catholic view that says regeneration is accomplished by baptism. Alright? First, you know, the plagiarism view, I'll just work it. I'll work my way right with God. Catholic says, I'll do something, I'll do an ordinance and I'll be right with God. I'll just get wet. Alright? So it's a work of man through a divine ordinance. The Church of Christ holds this view also. It's called baptismal regeneration. I get wet, I get saved. Alright? The Arminian view is called, which is semi-Pelagian. Regeneration is not exclusively God or man's. It's the fruit of man's choice to cooperate with the divine influences. Alright, they teach that the work of man, a decision to trust Christ, is prior to the work of God. In other words, you just come along and you say, I think I'll believe in Christ. And therefore, God gives you new life. This view is probably held by most evangelicals. They believe it was necessary for them in an act of their own will to cooperate with the grace found in the preaching of the Word of God. And we're taught this free will stuff everywhere. All the Hollywood movies, anything that portrays God, you know, God's up there and He just... He can't get past the will. He's very frustrated. Okay? Then there's a position that we hold here at Breen Bible Church called the Reform View, which teaches that regeneration is a work of God. God made us alive who were dead. 
God made us willing who were unwilling. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of Yahweh according to the Reformed view. Now this is not, you know, people say, well, that's just crazy. No, not many people in the church believe that. You're right. It's not something taught, you know, by the majority today. But this is not an isolated movement. Unconditional election is taught by some of the greatest of the Christian creeds. The Westminster Confession of Faith. The 39 Articles of the Anglican Church. The Canons of the Senate of Dort. The Belgic Confession. The Heidelberg Catechism. They're all standard confessional documents that the great mass of orthodoxy used to hold to. And they affirm in their faith, they teach the sovereignty of God in salvation. To them it was always a work of God. But today in our man-centered world, it's all about man and man's choice. See, the Bible teaches we're all born in a state of death. And then at some point in our life, Yahweh calls us. This is the effectual call. It's a call from death to life. The effectual call, this regeneration, is by grace without means. Very important that we understand that. It's a supernatural act of Yahweh where He gives a person a new heart and that person becomes spiritually alive. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce his own new birth than Lazarus did to produce his own resurrection. Lazarus is laying in the tomb, been in there for three days, Yeshua says, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus said, let me see, how, I'm going to choose to get up and get out of here or not. No, he just got up and went out because God gave him life. This calling of God, this spiritual birth is affected, as I said, without means. See, most people think that the means of regeneration is either the Word of God or faith. Let me just say this, if the Word of God, you know, just hearing the Word of God was a means of regeneration, then what I would do is I'd put together an elite team of guys, and we'd go out and just start kidnapping people. We'd bring them in the church and set them down and handcuff them to the chairs. We'd turn on the speakers and just bombard them with the Word until they got saved. Then we'd let them go. You're free. You're saved. Now go on and have a wonderful life. No one would prosecute us because now they'd be saved and they'd be thankful they got saved, Right? But it doesn't work like that, people. Regeneration is a direct act of God upon the spirit of man. Truth cannot be the means of regeneration because before a man is regenerated, he's blind and he cannot see the truth. He's deaf. He cannot hear the truth. Dead men can't respond to truth. It can't be the means of the new birth because the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit. As 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches, The increase of light will not enable a blind man to see the disease of the eye must first be healed. So must a man be regenerated by the Spirit of God so he can receive the truth. It is solely a work of the Spirit. That's why we pray for the lost. Because God has to do something. When Yahweh calls, we come. The call of God is irresistible. Look at John 6.44. This is, to me, the Arminian's most unget-overable verse. I've seen more Arminians trip over this verse and trip right into Calvinism if they understand it, okay? Because it says really clearly, no one, no, not even you, no one can come to me, Christ says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one's coming unless God draws, and I will raise him up at the last day. We see here again the idea that nobody comes unless God first comes gives that person spiritual life. The Greek word for draw here is helkuo. 
Strong's says Helkuo means to drag. So maybe these people who accuse Calvinists of, you know, their God being someone who drags, that's what it means. It drags. No one comes unless God drags him. Kittle says it means to compel by irresistible superiority. All right? This, you know, people say, well, this means God has to woo you. There's nothing about woo in this text. There's nothing about call God dragging people. All right? You don't come unless God drags. Look at John 6.37. All that the Father give me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All those that the Father gives to Christ come to Christ because He changes their heart. Too many think that salvation begins with man's quest for God. That's why we have seeker Friendly churches, because we got a lot of people out there and they're just seeking for God. No, they're not. They might be seeking for the benefits that God gives. They might have a messed up lifestyle. I wish my life was perfect and I was rich and healthy and all this stuff. So let me go to church because God gives all those things, right? That's what my buddy Joel will tell you. You just go to his church then you know, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and you'll be wonderful. All right. Must be working for him. Packed out. All right. And people today just don't have an idea of the sovereign Lord giving life supernaturally to dead souls. In a word, they exhibit little or no grasp of the biblical order of salvation. The emphasis in Scripture is not on what man does to appropriate the grace of God, but on what God does in applying it. See, salvation's of God, and God gets the glory in salvation, not man. So we have foreknowledge, we have predestination, and we have calling. The calling that Jude 1 talks about is in this order of salvation. And then next we have justified. Whom He predestined, those He called. Whom He called, those He justified. You see, it's just unbroken. It goes from one to the next. When we believe in Christ, when we trust Christ, we are justified. The Scriptures are clear that faith in Yeshua is the instrumental precondition of justification. For example, Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, you don't get right by doing things, but through faith in Christ Yeshua. You're justified by faith. Even we have believed in Christ Yeshua that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It would surely seem impossible to avoid the conclusion that salvation and justification are upon the Event of faith. You believe in God, you are justified. God justifies the ungodly who believe. He justifies believers. He gives you a new heart, He calls you, and then you believe because you have a new heart. See, the logical sequence is that faith precedes justification. Most of the church has it the other way around. You believe and then you get, you know, then you get saved, or God gives you life, but faith precedes justification. It doesn't precede regeneration. Many scriptures said that faith is the response of our hearts to the divine call of God. Therefore, faith should be positioned in the broad outline between calling that God does first and justification. Are we now of this order? We've got foreknowledge, election, calling, justification, and finally, glorification. Romans 8.30 teaches that glorification is the last act in the application of salvation. Paul uses the past tense here of glorified. But the transition saints were not yet glorified. So why does he use the past tense? Well, Bruce, F.F. Bruce, who, by the way, is a futurist, not a preterist, he suggests that perhaps Paul was imitating the Hebrew prophetic past tense 
in which a future event is spoken of as past because the certainty of its coming. It's so certain it's coming, it's spoken of as a past event. And so, he speaks here as, re, in, as the fact that this glorification had already happened. They have been glorified. So what is glorification? Well, it's the culmination of Christ's redemptive work whereby all for whom He died and fitted for eternity will live in His presence forever. Look at Colossians 3.4. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Believers, Christ has been revealed. And we have been glorified. Being glorified is essentially being delivered from the damage inflicted by sin, which was separation from God, and being restored into the presence of God forever. Now, I want to ask a couple of questions to those preterists. Let me define it. A preterist is someone who believes that the Lord has returned, the second coming, the judgment, and the resurrection all happened in AD 70. That's a preterist. Now, within that spectrum, we got all kinds of different beliefs. All right? We got some beliefs that nothing happened after AD 70, nothing exists anymore. The church doesn't exist anymore. Believers don't, there's no salvation after AD 70. There's nothing after AD 70. Well, some people say, well, there's no election. Election was something that only happened prior to AD 70. After AD 70, nobody needs to be, get elected anymore. So here's my questions. All right? When did God in time past need to draw, why did God in time past need to draw men to himself, but now he doesn't? How come he doesn't need to draw men anymore? And that would ask, what changed in unregenerate man since 8070? Has man, the, the, uh, the constitution of unregenerate man somehow different now after 8070 that he doesn't need to be called? Are men no longer born spiritually dead after 8070? And if they're not born dead, then what's their condition? Are men no longer born in sin and separated from God since AD 70? If they're not, then they don't need a Savior. Because they're not separated from God, they're not in sin, so they're born saved. And that would include everybody, so that would be universalism. Right? Unless you believe that everybody since AD 70 is saved and they're all born saved, you got a hard time buying that. According to Revelation, there's believers outside the city. Look at Revelation 22:14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is talking about the righteous. Their robes have been cleansed in righteousness so that they may have the right to the tree of life. They're entering the tree of life. They're, they're enjoying the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And now it's back, okay? And they may enter the gates of the city. The city is the dwelling place of God. This is sacred space. This is God's temple. This is Mount Zion. This is the new covenant. So they're entered in the city. But watch the next verse. Outside. Outside what? Outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and the immoral person and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So you got the kingdom after AD 70 and there are those in the city the saved, and there's always outside the city, the unsaved. Here's my question. How do the unsaved become saved after 8070? Do they not? Some say they don't. Some say no one gets saved after 8070. Well, I think they're getting saved the same way they always have got saved. Alright? The sovereign God calls them and gives them life. Let me ask you another question. What has changed in the Ordo Salutis since 70? God foreknew. He predestined. 
He called, he justified, and glorified. What does he not need to do anymore? Are we born glorified? If that's true, we don't need to be justified, called, predestined, or foreknew. But see, I don't see Yahweh changing all of a sudden and says, ah, I'm not going to do that that way anymore. What's our justification for thinking that? Are all believers glorified today? Yes. Are all justified today? Yes. Why? Because we're called. And we're called because we're predestined. And we're predestined because we are loved. None of this changed that I see since AD 70. And I need some biblical references to show that something was changed or was going to change after this time period. Let's quickly look at Jude's second point in this triad. This will only take a second, alright? Because we've already dealt with it. He calls the called beloved. Beloved in God the Father. As we've already seen, this is the, the ground of the call. This is the reason we're called. And he puts it in such a tense that the indication is that at the time when he writes this, Jude regards these individuals who have been loved as still being loved. So they're called. They're beloved in God the Father. They have been loved by God and loved into union with Him. This is the ground of the calling. When we talk about God's love, we're not talking about this general love of benevolence which is expressed towards all men. We're talking about a very special divine love that is reserved for His elect. As you read the Bible, you can't help but make that distinction. Those who are the elect are chosen because they're loved with a very special love. Foreknowledge is speaking of covenantal love. And all He loved, He glorified. Okay, there's no break in that, people. There's no break in it at all. If Yahweh loved everybody, then guess what? Everybody would be saved. But all are not saved because He doesn't love everybody. He only calls the ones He loves. So in Jude's time, and now, all believers are called. And they're called because they're loved. So, those to whom Jude is writing, his, his audience, he calls them the called. They are called because they are loved. And he says they are kept. And so is every believer. Yahweh loved us, so He called us. And He keeps us. Nothing, people, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Yeshua. And we'll look at the third point of this triad next week. The kept. Because we're called, we're loved, and we're kept. This subject for this morning is greatly confused in the church today. They don't understand the call of God and therefore, they don't understand that we're kept. And believe, believe me, people, assurance is one of the most important things in your Christian life. If you have no assurance, you'll have no victory in your Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your grace toward us, Lord. I thank You for Your calling. Lord, it's incredible to think that You loved us because of who You are, not because of who we are. You made us very special because You did choose us. And You brought us into Your family for all eternity. Lord, I thank You for the security we have, for the love we have in that family. And I thank You, Lord, that all praise, all honor, all glory goes to You, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen.